Well, good evening. It's good to see you all, and thank you for coming. And it, I think the graciousness is not so much on my part and your part for inviting me. <coughs> and I'll just uh, tell you one story because I think it uh, it exalts the Lord and it's encouraging and it will give you a chance to get used to my voice. Some people think I have an accent. I don't have an accent. I speak English. <laughs> but if you want to find the scripture, it will be in Hebrews chapter 8. Um, and we live in Northern Ireland, and in Southern Ireland, there was a couple, and they were called Robin and Olive, and they were a remarkable couple. They were really quite wealthy. They had a huge house on the mountainside. Robin had a, a printing business in the city of Dublin. They decided they would not have television. And uh, the reason for that is they wanted not to occupy their time all the time sitting in the living room, but actually be available for ministry. While they had this very nice home, they were also part of a kind of upper-middle-class church. <clears throat> but there were a lot of poorer people in the area, nearly all of them Roman Catholic, and hardly any of them actually knew the Lord. And so they began the ministry to children for poor families, and Catholics tend to have big families, and together with the poverty, a lot of hungry kids. And so they decided to have five evenings, Monday through Friday, for different age groups of kids. They had uh, what you would call a station wagon, and they each had one, and they would go out and they would pick up kids, and in those days there were no seat belts, and they would pack about 10 kids in the back and and four others in the seats and they would bring them home, give them a meal, play some games with them, short Christian message and take them home again. And four different age groups, Monday through Friday. When the kids became teenagers, they had four cars then. And so they had four cars to pick up kids and bring them home. A lot of the kids... Uh, became believers, and quite a few of their parents did. So uh, they had a couple of mornings for women and Saturday mornings for men, and it grew to be quite a large movement, but these were all Catholic backgrounds, lower-income groups, didn't fit the wealthier uh, church that they had been part of for a long time. And uh, I ha w was uh, quite a frequent visitor and would talk to different groups. And one uh, time I preached a message <coughs> called Crackpots. And the idea being that Paul says uh, we have this treasure in jars of clay and the treasure is God the Holy Spirit living in our human vessels. <clears throat> and I preached that message and I, the climax was it that the treasure is never seen until the pot is broken. And then you see the treasure. 
and uh, I didn't expect this, but this spoke very strongly to the wife, Olive. And she was from a wealthy family herself, quite apart from having a wealthy husband. And a very gifted lady, a great organizer, a wonderful classical pianist, and lots of gifts. And um, <clears throat> she felt really impacted by these words. And the next day, unknown to me, uh, she went and had a look around the town. And the poorest houses are what you would call row houses, where they're all built together in one block. And there was one for sale. It was on five floors right in the middle. And she bought it and opened a coffee bar on the ground floor and called it Crackpots. <laughs> and she had a, a potter actually make her a six-foot coffee pot with a crack in it and the white pot painted orange inside, the lights inside. <clears throat> and so the ground floor was the coffee shop. The next floor up was a reading and counseling room. <clears throat> and the next floor up was for longer-term counseling and fellowship. The next two floors were an apartment, and she put a couple in there full-time, paid their salaries, and they ran the whole place. And it became a church of about 400 people. <laughs> and, uh, and then Olive, age 42, got a brain tumor. Died in six weeks. And Robin was devastated. By that time, the kids had left home. Um, and he was living by himself in this huge house. And whenever I could, I made contact with him, but as some of you know, I was hardly ever in one place. <laughs> but uh, we went down there, uh, I think four years after Oliver died, and we were down in the area mainly because a friend that we'd been sponsoring through seminary was graduating, and we went down for a graduation. And I thought, I've just got to go and see Robin, see how he is. So I drove up the long drive to the house and stopped the car and uh, our friend and Eva were in the car and uh, here was a woman doing some gardening and I didn't recognize her and she gave me a very funny look as though, who does this guy think he is driving on my driveway? <laughs> and it felt a bit embarrassing and I got out and I said, you know, I'm really... So sorry, I'm obviously interrupting you. And I was just looking for Robin Bowles. He used to live here. And she said, oh, he still lives here. He's over there. And she was his new wife of two weeks. And they invited us to lunch. We had lunch with him. And when I was leaving, Robin said to me, took me on one side and said, I'm so glad you've met Margaret. I really want you to pray for us. And I want you to pray that we will find somewhere a mission in an English-speaking country where we can go and work for six months. And we won't need an income. <clears throat> but Margaret is a lovely lady. Um, I met her on an airplane going to Texas. 
and we were both going to an event that was fundraising, fundraising for uh, <coughs> brain tumor. And uh, we were side by side on the plane, long flight. She had just lost her husband. I had lost Olive and we came together and God brought us together and I <coughs> am so happy to have Margaret, but she's not Olive. She doesn't play the piano. She's not a great organizer. She doesn't have pots of money. <laughs> she's just a different person. And she's not accepted by the people at Crackpots. Uh, but neither is she accepted by, at the church I used to go to because she had a Catholic background. <clears throat> so he said, just pray for us that we'll find someone who'll go away for six months serve the Lord as a couple and come back as an established couple. And I thought, well, good. Yeah, of course I'll pray for it. But even at the time, I felt God wanted me to do something else as well. And as I prayed for them over the next three months, there was one name kept coming into my mind, and it was the only thing. And the name was Clayton Dugan. And Clayton Dugan is Scottish, as you might guess. <clears throat> and uh, Clayton and Eva and I were all in Bible college together in 1964. <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, he is an evangelist based in Victoria on Vancouver Island, Canada. And he is married to a, a, great, <laughs> a great little woman called Isabel who is extremely sarcastic. And Isabel and I spend most of our time, when we are in communication, insulting one another. And we look for the rudest birthday cards we can find. Just send them, whether it's, you know, January or June, it doesn't matter. You find a good one, you send it. <laughs> and uh, so uh, after three months with the name Clayton Dugan kept coming to me, and it was the only response I was getting from God, I decided, well, I need to telephone. So I waited for evening because the rates are even, uh, cheaper when you phone in the evening from Britain to Canada. <clears throat> and Isabel answered the phone. And she said, so, uh, she said, so is you need him? I said, yeah, I was hoping to talk to somebody sensible. <laughs> is he in there? And she said, no, he's not. What do you want? So I said, well, I know this couple there in, in the late 40s, and they want to have a six-month mission, and their particular interest is starting small groups in big churches. <clears throat> and uh, they want to do it somewhere English-speaking, and they speak some sort of English in Canada, so I thought that would do it. And she said, and you want me to organize this, do you? And I said, well, I'd like Clayton to, actually. <laughs> and she said, utterly ridiculous as usual, need him crazy, and she put the phone down. And I didn't know there was somebody else in the room, but she turned to the other lady and she said, this is my idiot friend in England, and he's got this couple and they want to come 
somewhere English speaking and start small groups and big churches and he thinks I can just wave a wand and do it. And the woman said, well, actually, that's what we're praying for. <laughs> now, try organizing them. <laughs> so they went over there originally for six months, stayed two years, had a wonderful time and were six months in four different churches and, and transformed those churches. And then they came back to Ireland and they got established in a new church altogether. And they, uh, we actually saw them in September last year and they're doing really well. So hopefully you've found Hebrews by now. And if you haven't, give up the search. I'll read it for you. <coughs> Before I do that, and... Um, <clears throat> Most of you, if not all of you, will know the name Jeremiah. He's a prophet from the Old Testament, and he's usually known as the weeping prophet because he had a very heavy experience. He was a man who was really in touch with God, but he was a man who really had a heart for his people, lived in Jerusalem, <coughs> and his own people were abandoning God or had done pretty much. And when he spent time with God, God told him what was going to happen, and they were going to be made slaves in Babylon. <clears throat> and so when he was with God, he got this message from God that the people needed to repent, otherwise Babylon was not very far ahead. <clears throat> but when he tried to tell the people about that, they rejected him and hated him for telling them this, and nobody wants to listen to bad news. And so he was torn apart, trying to stay in contact with both sides. <clears throat> and because of that, he didn't sleep very well. And for several months, he didn't sleep. And then one night, God let him have a glimpse into the future beyond man's failure into God's remedy. And that night, he says, my sleep was sweet. <laughs> and when I first read it, I thought, who cares whether Jeremiah slept well or not? Um, <clears throat> but anyway, what God showed him was um, his plan for the future. We'll start in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 8. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his bro brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Israel were and still are God's chosen people. And they had an amazing history. Abraham was told by God to leave his home country and go to somewhere else that I'll show you. Didn't tell him where, didn't give it a name. And where Abraham lived was really the center of culture and civilization. And I travel a lot, (laughs) but I like to know where I'm going. (laughs) I once uh, got on a plane in San Francisco and there was total confusion in the airport. And when I got onto the plane, the pilot was standing just into the left and all the seats were down to the right. And uh, I wanted to make sure I was on the right plane. So I said to him, this is the flight to Anchorage, isn't it? And the pilot said, I guess. (laughs) And I said, I don't want to get off in New Zealand. (laughs) Where's it going? (laughs) I like to know where I'm going. I also like to know that I can get back again. Make sure I know where my passport is. But Abraham was going to leave his own culture, his own country, go somewhere he didn't know where, and he'd never be going back again. But by faith he did that. He trusted God in that way. And then when he was 75 years old, His wife, Sarah, was 65. And, uh, you know, she'd passed through that time when a thermostat went haywire and all that stuff. (laughs) And uh, God promised them a son. (laughs) It didn't seem very likely. But he promised them. And they believed it. Because then they forgot it because a few years passed, like 25, 24. When Abraham was 99, Sarah was 89. You know, I mean, 89. (laughs) (laughs) And God gave them a son. Sarah conceived for the very first time at age 89. When Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. They had their first child. It was so funny, they called him laughter, Isaac. (laughs) And the entire nation descends from that one kid. Miraculous in their beginnings. And uh, they became slaves in Egypt. And by that time, there wasn't one kid, there were three million because they were very good at arithmetic and they multiplied. (coughs) 
and there were three million slaves in Egypt and God rescued them, they didn't have to fight their way out. They didn't lose one man. And the Egyptians gave them flocks, herds, jewelry, silver, gold, food, clothing, everything they wanted. They just wanted them out of there, you know. Just get out, take what you want, leave us. <clears throat> and so they left Egypt with all this stuff. And God had prepared a country for them. And it was a beautiful country. It was described as flowing with milk and honey. Some people think that they had to wear rubber boots because it was all wet and sticky, but that's not really what it indicates. It's really a, a beautifully productive land where all their needs would be met. <coughs> and um, it was already built. The towns were built, the villages were built, the roads were built, the farms were built. They just had to walk in and take it over. Uh, <clears throat> most of the building was done by giants because Caterpillar were not much of a, an enterprise in those days. <clears throat> and if you don't have diesel engines, then probably giants are the next best thing to do your construction business. And they walked in, and again, they didn't have to fight for it. They were given it, and they didn't lose any people over there. And they were established as God's bride, and he made this covenant, this agreement with them. And his side was he would be their protector and their provider, and their side was they would keep his laws. And every law was a good law. There wasn't a bad law among them. I know sometimes uh, our laws can be a bit questionable, but uh, every law was a good law because every law was based on the character of God. And by studying that law, they would know what God is like. So, for example, if God were a man he wouldn't even think of going to bed with another man's wife. Because that would involve breaking his promise to his wife and her breaking her promise to her husband. And God is not in the promise-breaking business, he's in the promise-keeping business. And by studying the law, they would realize how faithful God is. He is absolutely faithful. Every promise he makes, he keeps. By obeying the law, they would show what God is like. And anybody else watching them would see the character of God reproduced in his people and lived out in a human fashion. <clears throat> and that was to be their role in the earth. They were to represent God to the rest of the world. Having a good set of laws is, of course, a great blessing because it means you've got organization and harmony and all that. And <clears throat> the problem came when they didn't keep the law. Why not? Well, sometimes when you really want to do what's right, you just can't do it. And Paul himself says this, when I want to do good, 
I don't do it. When I don't want to do the rotten thing, I do it. <laughs> Who's going to rescue me from me? <laughs> I'm the problem here. <clears throat> and so they broke the law frequently because A, they couldn't keep it, and then B, they didn't want to keep it. <clears throat> and then, of course, when you break the law and you keep on breaking the law, then you feel what? Guilty, right? And uh, not everybody wants to go through life feeling guilty. So if you can't keep the law and you don't want to keep the law and you don't want to feel guilty, what do you do? Forget the law, right? Which is what Israel did. And that was their half of the marriage contract. And so God says, well, if you can't keep your side of the contract, I'm not going to keep mine. It's over. And in the end, what he was showing to Jeremiah was, was divorce here. Yeah. Heartbreaking, as far as God's concerned. My bride is doing this to me. And it's over. And that's distressed. Jeremiah a whole lot. But now God shows beyond man's failure to a new covenant. And these are the terms of it. If anybody wants to have a relationship with God, it's got to be on these terms. It's the only one on offer. <clears throat> and God is in a position to dictate terms, and you and I are not in a position to argue. For example, most of us need air to breathe. So we don't function really well without it. And the only air, uh, only air available is his. <laughs> if he decides you're not having any more, there's not a whole lot you can do about it, is it? So he's in a position to set the terms and we say yes or no. So this, the terms of this new marriage contract, because that's what it really is, uh, are experienced by us the opposite way round to the way it's written. So we come into it at the last line. I will remember their sins no more. So what does that mean? <laughs> I've heard preachers say, God has a faulty memory. So that if I were to go to God and say, hey, do you remember that dreadful thing I did last July? God would say, no, I don't. Well, I do. <laughs> and if I remember it and he doesn't, I know more than he does. Does that sound right to you? Doesn't sound right to me. Somebody gave me a great piece of advice, a very helpful piece of advice a long time ago. <clears throat> and it was this. If the Bible uses a word and you don't understand what it means, check out the first time it appears in the Bible and the context will probably describe it to you. So I did this with the word Remember. The first time you get the word remember in Scripture, it's quite early on. 
and it has to do with Noah. You are aware of Noah. He built a kind of unusual boat with an even more unusual crew and passenger list. <clears throat> Do you remember how many floors it had? Three, very good. H how many doors? One. How many windows? One. Three floors, only one door and one window, means that at least one floor did not have a door or a window. How long were they in there? Rained for 40 days. They were in there just over a year. It's a long time to be in an ark, isn't it? Especially if you're on that one floor. <laughs> what do you think the atmosphere was like? <laughs> and it was dark. So what happened after a year? Here's what it says. God remembered Noah. <laughs> it was about time, really, wasn't it? Well, I mean, God suddenly woke <coughs> Noah. <laughs> we better do something about him. It's going to sink. Those elephants have been busy. <clears throat> now, I don't believe that God had forgotten Noah, do you? So if he hadn't forgotten him, how could he remember him? And what it obviously means is this, that the moment had come in God's precise plan for the next stage of his dealings with Noah. It's not a mental recall, it's an action. And you get the same thing as we mentioned already with Abraham. When he was 75, God made him a promise. When he was 99, God remembered his promise. And Sarah conceived. So when God remembers something, he takes action. So when God remembers your sin, what does that mean? Hmm. It means he takes action concerning your sin. Well, of course he does. He has to. God takes action concerning every sin. If he didn't, he wouldn't be a God of justice, and he is a God of justice, perfect justice. But Jesus assumed your sin and mine. And not just ones in the past, but all of them, future. All of them. And they were all laid on Jesus. And the moment you realize you need a Savior and you turn to Jesus to be that Savior, God says to you, I will remember your sins no more. I'm not going to do anything else concerning your sin because I've already done it to Jesus. And that's where we come in to the new covenant. That's the first line, and it's pretty good, but it's only the first line. The next line up says, I will forgive their wickedness. And some people seem to think that not punishing is the same as forgiveness. It isn't. It's a totally different idea. Forgiveness means this, that whatever the offense that has come between us is removed and the relationship is totally healed 
as long as, as though the offense had never been committed. To put it a, a different way, Paul tells us we are accepted in the beloved, which is Jesus. In other words, you and I have as much right in heaven as Jesus does. We're as acceptable to God as Jesus is. Well, of course, because he's taken away our sin and he's credited us with the righteousness of Jesus. And so uh, it may be difficult to learn to forgive ourselves sometimes. And uh, it's easy sometimes to think, well, I know I'm forgiven, I know I'm going to heaven, but I'm not a great example. And, and I suspect that God is sitting up there grinding his teeth saying, look at the wretch. I've gone and forgiven him now, can't take that back, but look at him. <laughs> No. He sees me as he sees Jesus. He sees you as he sees Jesus. Going up from there, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me, from the least to the greatest. And I did the same thing with the word know as I did with the word remember. So when does the Bible first use the word know? And the answer is way back. Here's what it says. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Whoa, it's pretty personal, isn't it? They will all know me. They will be on the most intimate terms imaginable with me. And that's what God is looking for. That, that's why Israel is called his bride and the church is called his bride. We're part of the same bride. God is looking forward to the consummation of that marriage, marriage supper of the land and longing to have that depth of intimacy with you as any human being has ever had with anybody else. So I might throw out this question as a little checkup. Would you be happy in your marriage if it was no more intimate than your relationship with God. And maybe that's an indication of something we might do to improve things. <clears throat> They'll all know me from the least to the greatest. Uh, I think one of the sicknesses of our present world is the cult of celebrity that certain people are oh so valuable they're celebrities and if there's a big event happening the celebrities will be invited you know and after that 
people with a bit of influence or people who can be useful and if it's a really big thing then they might even get away way down to people like you and me but God says they will all know me from the least to the greatest he doesn't start with the great he starts with the least <clears throat> and he says from the least and then even the greatest won't be excluded provided they don't let their greatness get in the way <laughs> there is a church in Jerusalem supposedly built over the site excuse me in Bethlehem but supposedly built over the site where Jesus was born but to get in there you've got to go through an entrance that's about this high which means you've got to get off your horse for one thing and, and sort of bow down to get in there. The feeling that you're great uh, would prevent you from getting close to God. <clears throat> so what's next? they will be my people they'll be my people one of the saddest things about our modern world is the fact that many people don't really belong anywhere refugees don't believe in their don't belong in their own country they're persecuted they try to go somewhere else and nobody else wants them. If we wanted them, <laughs> we'd have them. And of course, it's not just refugees. People who live alone and have no friends. And sometimes they die and nobody even knows they've died until somebody finds a bill's not been paid. I taught for many years at a Bible school in England and it's situated in a castle. <laughs> and uh, when you come in, you come through a fairly narrow entrance into a very spacious, very beautiful lounge hall. It has a huge stone fireplace that will burn nine-foot logs. And it has a beautiful chandelier and a staircase and stained glass window. And uh, one day I was standing in the hall by the staircase. And the staircase has an oak banister and it comes down 32 degrees to the horizontal. And it's about yay wide and it's highly polished and it's wonderful for sliding down except the brass knobs every three feet that slow you down a bit. <laughs> and I was walking through the hallway there and I heard what sounded like the war cry of a Cherokee Indian. <laughs> and um, I looked up and here was a girl from Texas, blonde, 19 years old, and she was leaping downstairs four at a time and gathering momentum as she came down. 
And at the end of the banister, there was a big round polished wooden knob. And she hit the bottom step traveling extremely fast. And she'd obviously done this a few times before. She hooked her elbow round the big knob and she took off and flew. And she flew right round, unhooked, and sailed through the air for about six or seven feet and landed right next to me. She threw her arms around me, gave me a big hug and a small kiss, shouted, Yippee! and disappeared through a doorway. I looked up to see if there were any more needing the same treatment. <laughs> and when there weren't, weren't any, I thought I should tell my wife about it, just in case she heard anyway. And uh, when I did, she said, oh, you are slow. And I'd been thinking the very same thing, but maybe not in quite the same way. And, and um, I decided to say nothing. And she said, don't you know why? And I said, well, of course I know why. She likes me, it's obvious. <laughs> uh, no, she said. <clears throat> She's getting married, of course. Oh, I thought it was important. <clears throat> and I asked the question, who to? Well, isn't that the obvious question? <clears throat> like, who on earth would know? <laughs> um, <clears throat> in the scripture it says, <clears throat> we're to be married to him who is raised from the dead. Who's that? This girl was so excited because at last she belonged to somebody. Somebody wanted her and wanted to spend the whole of their future with her. It's great to know you belong, isn't it? And God says, that'll be my people. <clears throat> and generally speaking, something is worth what somebody else will pay for it. Isn't that right? So what did God pay for you? Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's what God thinks you're worth. And that's the price he puts on the relationship. That'll be my people. <clears throat> but see, along with the privilege and the security that comes with belonging, there comes responsibility. Thinking of my good friend Ken over there, got round to thinking about his image with the rabble in the church here. And how he's seriously undervalued and people don't really recognize the unique qualities and spirituality that are his. And decides 
<coughs> he needs a status symbol, status if you must, <coughs> to impress the rest of you with who he is. And he settles on a Ferrari. <laughs> and uh, having thought about that, he doesn't want an ordinary Ferrari, he wants the very top of the range, and one that will be noticed a bit, a yellow one with kind of purple lightning stripes on it. And he checks out to see how much that would cost, and it, it's only $88,000. And he checks with his bank to see if he's got that much just sitting in the account waiting to be used. <clears throat> he hasn't quite, so he saves his income for a couple of weeks <coughs> and then orders one. And it is delivered to his home because if you order a Ferrari, you don't have to go and get it. They'll bring it to you. So it's parked outside Ken's home <coughs> Saturday, 6 p.m. And it's supposed to do 228 miles an hour. <coughs> and he's really tempted to see whether it will or not. <coughs> but it wouldn't be very spiritual to go out joyriding in the very first trip in it, so he should reserve it for a, a truly spiritual purpose. So he, he doesn't even take it out Saturday night. He's going to come to church in it Sunday morning. <laughs> and uh, he can leave later than usual because he'll get here quicker. <laughs> and there's no point in getting here before you do it. You won't see him arrive. So he leaves it just a wee bit later, and then he goes out because he's left it parked in the street, of course, so the neighbors will see. <clears throat> he goes out, and it's not there. Shelley has come to church in it. Because <laughs> women have rights in America. <laughs> and he's very patient, very forgiving, and he gets on his bicycle, just rides over here. <clears throat> Only a minute or two late, and of course he forgives Shelley, just locks her up in the office to make sure she doesn't do it again. And he thinks, uh, this could work in my favor, because everybody's seen the car in the parking lot, then they'll see me drive away in it after the service, They'll know it's mine. They'll be deeply impressed. Uh, and they won't be here to answer all the embarrassing questions like, how did you pay for this? <coughs> but when uh, the service is over and he goes out to the parking lot, he's just in time to see it being driven away with Pastor Steve at the wheel. Because who's the pastor around here anyway? <laughs> and... Uh, so a few days go by and everybody else is driving it, the local sheriff's testing it, thinking about one for the sheriff's department. <coughs> and Ken still hasn't actually sat in it. <laughs> and then more time goes by and everybody's driving it. Two years and still he's not got to drive his car. While he is extremely patient and spiritual, it's just beginning to irritate him a bit. And he sits down one morning and thinks, how much did I pay for that thing? $88,000. Doesn't that mean it's mine? If it's mine, how come I don't get to drive? Why are all these other people driving it? 
And you're probably thinking this is the silliest story you've ever heard anywhere at any time. And you're right, it is. Uh, <coughs> except, how much did Jesus pay for you? So who do you belong to? See, and it might be that Jesus is intending to use you for one of his purposes. You've never got to yet because you've never been available. You serve all kinds of other people, not him. So he says, they'll be my people. They'll have that security and dignity of belonging to me, but I will have their availability. I'll be able to use them for my purposes. Next line up says, I will be their God. And being God means lots of things. One is it means authority. And I learned authority in the army. <laughs> I didn't really intend going into the army, <clears throat> but I got this letter apparently from the Queen. I didn't know that she knew me, but it seems she did, and she wanted me in the army. And I could commend the intelligence in that, and that was useful. But I had just graduated in science and thought I was a very superior young man. And the Queen was very fortunate to have me on the same side. <clears throat> but the first creature I met was a gorilla. Massive pair of lungs loudest voice I ever heard, three stripes on his arm, and a brain about the size of a shriveled pea. I see, and while I thought I was a very superior young man, he didn't share my opinion. <laughs> see, and um, he had this habit, he was trying to transform a bunch of new recruits into a disciplined army, and he would get us dressed in these horrible hairy brown suits, and brown's never been my color, really. <clears throat> and the suits were itchy, and they had these heavy boots, and they got stretched, and he had to polish them every night, and slippery nails on the cell, and they were, he'd get us out on a concrete square, all over together on one side, and he'd shout, quick, march! And we'd march all the way to the other side, and just before we fell off that side, he'd shout, about turn! And we'd turn around and come all the way back again. Till we nearly fell off the other side when he'd shout, about turn! By this time, I'd be muttering, you stupid ape. What a waste of energy. Why don't you decide us? Where do you want us? This side or that side? Think first, then shout. And I was really not getting on well with this. When one night, as we were all polishing everything that could be polished, in came a captain looking for somebody called Needham. And I thought, shall I tell him it's me or shall I get onto the bed now? <coughs> and as I was trying to decide what to do, he said, you'll need him. And I said, oh, yes, I'm sorry. I just got used to being a number. I forgot I had a name as well. He said, according to your record, when you're in high school, you cared for all the equipment in your school theater. I said, I did. Good. There's going to be 
a production next month and everything has to be working. Tomorrow you will not go on parade. Tomorrow you will report to the theater and service all the equipment there. And I said, yes, sir. And the next morning when all the others were out marching up and down the square, I was in a little room at the back of the theater with a soldering iron in one arm, one hand, two bits of wire in the other hand, so I could look busy, and a mug of tea, and a kettle on to make the next mug, thinking to myself, army life is not that bad after all. I can make this last the whole time I have to stand down. When the door flew open, in came the gorilla, and he was upset. You know, he had a way of indicating when he was upset. He said, what are you doing in here? Get out there in the parade ground this instant. I gave him my nicest smile. Good morning, Sergeant. Would you like to check that with Captain Black first? I, I would be really distressed if you got into trouble. <clears throat> and he gave a huge snort, turned around, stamped out, slammed the door, which is probably still quivering, and I heard his lovely voice taking out his rage on all the other guys out in the square. And I sat there thinking, isn't it great to be under authority? <laughs> if I just decided to do that myself, he would have had me running around the assault course till now. However, because I did it under the orders of a captain, a mere sergeant couldn't touch him. Have you learned to live like that with God? that you know that everything you're doing is under his authority. Because if you know that, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It, it's enormously freeing. It's how Jesus lived. Religious community, Sabbath day, paralyzed man gets healed. The Jewish leaders, these are powerful guys, are furious. Breaking the Sabbath, disgusting, you Sabbath breaker. And Jesus was, oh no, oh I've done it again. <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> You're upset? And, well, my father's working, his name's God, maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> and he's at work, and I just cooperate. If you don't like it, go and tell him. And he was completely relaxed because okay. he knew that. I will be your God. I will be the authority over your life. My plans for you are absolutely perfect. My will is good, acceptable, perfect. Being God means sufficiency as well. Lights shine because I have a generator and they're connected to the generator. If they tried to shine without the generator, they'd have a hard time. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and praise your generator. Because they know you don't do it by yourself. Yeah? Is it happening? 
and the beginning of the new covenant says, I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. This is what God's looking for. The law was good. Every law was good. Problem was they couldn't keep it and didn't keep it. But it was an external law, the first ten written on two tablets of stone. Now it's no longer external. It's written by the Spirit of God in your brain and in your heart. It makes sense to you, you agree with it, and you love it. Because God himself is inspiring it all in you. And then you live out the righteousness of the law in a supernaturally natural fashion. It's not a forced obedience to something external. It's a natural expression of something internal. And so you then live out the glory of God. Exactly what you were designed to do at the creation of man. What's the problem with the human race? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we're raised to that level by the very God who wrote the law, fulfilling it through us, and we become then the light of the world. So that's the new deal. That's what God is looking for in his relationship with you. You can decide how much he's getting out of it and how much you're getting out of it and whether or not you want to make some adjustments. Okay? Thanks.